0: I read that you were practically living on Diet Coke, booze, and nitrous.
1: Not Diet Coke, a diet of cocaine. Stevo, The jackass superstar. He
0: survived his trademark wild stunts, along with some personal struggles.
1: It is of paramount importance that I find separation between me and the persona of Steve-O. Why? We have to go back to the beginning of my journey. I didn't get attention from my parents. My dad was a businessman,
0: and my mom suffered from alcoholism. Your father would praise you for stunts, diving headfirst for baseballs. And he'd give one dollar.
1: I don't think you have to be Sigmund Freud to imagine that had something to do with coming an attention for. That was when I started doing dangerous stunts. I'm Steve-O, and this is the fish hook. Why stunts? Growing up, I felt defective, and the I wasn't going to live very long. So I was lashing out at death, taunting it. But I lost my mom in 2003, and that traumatized me more than anything. I was out of control, broadcasting my downward spiral to 200 influential people in real time.
0: You were manhandled into a psych ward.
1: Yeah. This was going to be my legacy, having miserably failed at life. And the, the toughest thing is that
0: I wanted to make my mom proud. Stephen Gilchrist Glover, aka Stevo. Honesty. Honesty saved Stevo's life. But the man that sits in front of me today isn't Stevo. It is Stephen Gilchrist Glover, which is a man you've probably never met before. But once you meet Stephen Gilchrist Glover, you'll undoubtedly understand Stevo, that guy that we grew up with, on our screens doing those crazy jackass stunts. That behind the scenes, struggled with a deep discomfort of being in his own skin. Depression, drug addiction, existential panic, an obsession with attention, crippling grief, and most surprisingly and paradoxically of all, a deep, deep fear of death. It absolutely doesn't appear to make sense, but once you listen to this conversation, if you listen closely, you'll understand exactly why that's driving him. This conversation will make you laugh. It will inspire you. It will motivate you. It will challenge you. It will make you feel understood. And it will teach you what it takes and what it means to live a good life, including the role that romantic love has played in Stevo finally living a good life. And for me, it reaffirms to me once again that in order to live that good life, in order to find that good life, we need to surrender. Stop fighting life. And we need to be honest and once we are we might just find all of the things that we're looking for you're going to love this one stephen all right Steven, you've lived a anomalous life okay. the man that sits before me today is uh, an anomaly in many respects the, the professional path you've walked is extraordinary to say the least in order to understand you what what do i need to understand about your your earliest context to understand who you are and why you walked the path you did in your life what's huh. the first sort of domino that that i need to understand i would point
1: to my uh lineage my mom's side of the family is uh like the whole family tree, every leaf on the tree, um, suffered from alcoholism, some form of addiction. Um, and, and, and at the same time, very, uh, personable, um, charismatic individuals, which is very alcoholic and a lot of deviants. And then my dad's side of the family is, uh, super academic, um, there's a lot of theologians clergymen everybody's got at at least like a master's degree or a phd or they're you know highly decorated academia and my dad broke the mold by becoming a businessman um so i just kind of think that i am a little bit of a hybrid of both in that I definitely went towards deviance and suffered from alcoholism, but I had this rocket engine on it from my dad's side of the family. And as I've grown older, I think my uh, I I'm kind of manifest my dad's side more than my mom's side.
0: Before we start recording, I said that one of the things that really surprised me, we're, we're sat in London now, was to learn that you were born in London back in 1974.
1: Yeah, born in Wimbledon, um, which makes me British. My mother was born in Canada, which makes me Canadian. And my father was born in America, which makes me American. I'm what you call triple national. Wow. And I hold three valid passports.
0: I'm very jealous. It's cool. It's like having the keys to the, to the world in many respects. How, how did that impact you, though? Because you, you told me that you were you were born here. Your first words were in Portuguese in Correct. Brazil. Yeah. Then you're in Venezuela, then Canada, then USA. As a young child, that's figuring out the world and figuring out where he belongs and making friends. How does that sort of destabilization impact, impact you in hindsight?
1: I don't think you have to be Sigmund Freud to imagine that uh, that had something to do with me becoming an attention whore. And, um, I think that it's actually exacerbated by the fact that when I moved to Brazil at the age of six months, um, I moved to Brazil because my father became the president of Pepsi Cola in all of Brazil. And it was just kind of living it up. You know, um, I think that's the best way to describe it. And I didn't get much attention from my parents I was actually raised um by live-in maids which is why I spoke my first words in Portuguese so I think I was lacking for some attention from my parents and I think that that has something to do plus the instability And, and and always being the new kid in school it was I never stayed one place for more than a couple years um See, so, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I point to that for why I became such an attention whore.
0: The the context that you were, you raised in your your mother's at home, your dad's very very busy, very successful businessman by all accounts. Yeah,
1: not just busy, but traveling. Okay, my, my dad was consistently gone. I I would argue that he was gone more than he was home. And and mom w- was drunk um, a lot, so. I had um, not just uh, lacking attention, but lacking
0: supervision a lot of the time too. In 2023, we've learned a lot about addiction and alcoholism and those kinds of things. But I I imagine, I mean, I wasn't alive then, but back in 1974, people didn't understand that behavior as clearly as they do now. Did, Did you understand your mother's behavior when you were young? Did you understand her relationship with alcohol was a, uh, uh, an unhealthy thing or an addiction? I think so. Yeah. Um,
1: I think so because I remember, um, she would have these, these binges drinking, um, where it, it wouldn't be the case that my mom would get drunk at night and then wake up and you know, have a hangover and and then get drunk again the next night. It was more of a case where she would stay drunk for, for days or weeks on end. Um
0: and, you, you how old, sorry?
1: Oh um like it, it got really pretty crazy, I would say, when I was about eight. Certainly when I was nine it was it was terrible. And um whenever my mom would would sober up from one of her binges she would swear that she was never going to drink again and invariably she would and 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 i i say this because i think i really really understood the concept of the disease of alcoholism very well because when i would come home from school and find that my mom was drinking i would i would say to her mom you said you were never going to do this again and she would explain to me that this time it was going to be different. This time she was only going to have a couple. And I remember knowing that that was not the case. And that's kind of the the reality of alcoholism is that the alcoholic once they start drinking, they cannot stop. They've lost control, and and that it's it's a characteristic of alcoholics. The idea that that they the illusion that one day they're going to control and enjoy their drinking, and and uh, and they pursue this illusion into the gates of insanity or death. That's that's uh, how it's described, and I understood that. So I knew if Mom had one drink, I knew that all bets were
0: off for days or weeks. You know, you talked about lineage, like yeah the the
1: family line
0: yeah what is what is that then is that is that a predisposition is that a genetic predisposition in your view or is that a a a generational trauma you know did you have you ever figured out what causes that
1: i understand there to be a genetic component to the alcoholism um i don't know that it really matters um as much like, like why one becomes an alcoholic but Um, certainly as I said, on my mom's side of the, the family, it never skipped a generation. I mean, it got everybody. And then sanity of it. I mean, one could really describe it as, as a mental illness. I mean, they, they do say it's a disease that's centered in the mind. Um, for me to see and experience, what I did as a child, like just how, how awful it got, and then for me to just pick up a drink is is so is so insane. I mean, I, if if anybody should have known better, it should have been me. And I remember at the time, like sixteen years old, when I when I started drinking regularly, I just. Uh, convinced myself that what would make me different is that I was going to enjoy it. I was going I was going
0: to party. And uh it's just insanity. But that that speaks to the nature of the addiction and the disease though because people people that are outside of that situation might see it as um, self-destructive. But clearly, sure. you know, clearly it's it, it can't be that. It's clearly something else because you saw how destructive it was. Right. And yet it's still, through no choice you made, through no intention you made, it, it, it managed to to find you later in life. Did, what? your father in this context, is he aware that your mother has this disease of addiction with alcohol? Um,
1: <laughs> mom would really do her best to get her act together by the time dad got home from his business trips. Um, and, and with very little success. I would say when dad would get back, mom would describe that, that she was ill and, and, and dad would believe it a lot of the time. I think dad, uh, I mean, yeah, he knew, but, uh, but the extent of it and, um, how naive he was to, to believe that mom just wasn't feeling well or did he, but did, but did he, did he, did he? I don't know. I mean, we, we, we would describe it as rose colored glasses. Um, I don't know. And, and, and perhaps dad was just so focused on his stuff that, I mean, I don't even know. It would be crazy to not know, but somehow I believe that my dad was particularly naive or, or gullible. I, I'm not sure, but
0: sometimes I think men have a predisposition to avoid conflict, <laughs> yeah and, and to opt for an easy life <laughs> right
1: uh, uh-huh. I, I think that that that's probably fair too but man it's um it just makes me really sad that uh that that i lost my mom yeah i lost my mom in in 2003 um november of 2003 and um i just like i think had we both um been in recovery, I don't think anybody from my mom's side of the family ever managed to achieve long term sobriety. I think I'm the first. And I just I fantasize about what it would be like to for, for my mom and I to have both gotten, you know, gotten it. Well like what our relationship would be like. She would get such a kick out of it. I think that she would have gotten such a kick out of um, me being successful,
0: and she didn't get to see it. You know, she she never. She never. Well,
1: because Jackass
0: had just started to move at that point, hadn't it? Well,
1: the thing was that her last five years, she um, was terribly disabled, both physically and mentally, because in 1998 she suffered uh, an aneurysm which let which uh yeah it um rendered her very very disabled so the last five years it it, it she she didn't she had a really rough last five years and and that um traumatized me more than anything she developed bed sores she uh she cried in pain for for her last five years it it, it was the most upsetting the the, most by far the most traumatized I've ever been by anything was the situation that my mom was in for her last five years and um yeah and and it's all because of this this uh this thing, this alcoholism, and and had again, like, had she been been in recovery, had that not happened, had like we, we I just again, I fantasize about what our relationship might be like today. But yeah, that started us off on a bummer.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 it really interesting context though. Specifically, this, you know, you said the thing about attention and seeking attention from. um in a variety of different ways because you were destabilized in terms of your school, early schooling life, your father's not present. I, I read that you'd said that um, you wanted your father's approval and as a child, your father would praise you for physical stunts, such as yeah. diving headfirst um, <laughs> for baseballs or doing push-ups for your father's and his yeah. friends.
1: I would do 100 push-ups in a row for his buddies and he'd give me like $1 and, and that... Everybody got a kick out of that. I love doing it, and uh, I don't think they were terribly impressive push-ups because hundreds <laughs> a lot, but um, but yeah, I, I was a little bit of a
0: of a performer at my dad's behest. I think there's this thing called love languages. Have you ever seen it before? Have you ever done the love languages test thing? No. It's this thing you do online, and I think it's pretty telling. I'm not into like pseudo bullshit, whatever, but. It, I think it's pretty telling. And it basically, you answer these like 30, 40 questions and it tells you the language of love that you have. So some people are words of affirmation. That's how they kind of show and receive love. Some people are physical touch. Some people are little acts of service. Some people are gifts, for example. And it was making me, when I was, was reading that in your in your book, I was thinking about how, it, like that can become a love language for us. And it's funny, because then I skipped to this moment later in your story where you had a heartbreak. And the way that you responded to the heartbreak to try and get attention was by doing stunts. Yep. And I just saw this connection there, and I thought, you know, it's interesting. Some of our love languages can be, like, (laughs) stunts or... (laughs) Sure. Or other forms of, like, validation.
1: Uh Uh-huh. It's an interesting take on it. I remember um, at the point when I had the heartbreak, and that was when I I really started doing dangerous stunts. um, it, It was less for well yeah it was for attention and i wanted this 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 girl who had dumped me to uh to be worried that i would die (laughs) (laughs) like uh i mean it's crazy but yeah i was like i was jumping off rooftops into pools and and you know climbing off of like just huge balconies and stuff and
0: um and sending her the videos or just posting them where she's here?
1: Um, at the time, there was no such thing as sending videos without going to the post office. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I would send her in mail videos from the post office. I would mail them to her like once a year. <laughs> and, and and the videos genuinely did get radder and radder. <laughs> yeah, each new installment. It was, uh, it was yeah, it was crazy.
0: If I'd asked you when you were a young man, your teenage teenagers, what are you going to be when you grow up? what would you have responded? Ah, man.
1: The first
0: actual
1: thought I had for a career to pursue was um, one in advertising. You know, um, my father had won a video camera in a golf tournament, and I stole it from his closet and began videotaping my skateboarding with my buddies. And and I learned how to edit by plugging these video cassette recorders together. And I would hit play on one and record on the other to just record the the good bits. And and it was crude editing, not sophisticated, (laughs) Um, but uh, I fell in love with the process. And clearly I wasn't that great at skateboarding. So um, I just thought there's something about this uh, capturing video and then editing it to, you know, I mean, create presentations and ultimately to manipulate the video to cre- create influence. You know, mm. there was just something really magical and powerful about that. And um, I, I thought that that would be a great career for me. And so I went off to the university of Miami to pursue that, but I just had trouble making it to class. So I, I, graduating from university was not in the cards. And I I knew I still loved the video camera and, you know, manipulating images to to sway people one way or the other. And um, I decided that since I wasn't that great at skateboarding that I would do crazy stunts. And so I literally dropped out of university in 1993 to pursue a career as a crazy famous stunt man. And there was no precedent at the time. Like Everybody who I explained that plan to <laughs> legitimately felt sorry for me. Like what a tragic loser I, I seemed to be. And, and they weren't wrong for the first uh, three years after i left the university of miami i was genuinely homeless i was um m- more of a couch surfer than you know a a guy living on the streets um but yeah i had no home man and um i was not
0: doing well quick one before we get back to this episode just give me 30 seconds of your time two things I wanted to say. The first thing is a huge thank you for listening and tuning into the show week after week. It means the world to all of us and this really is a dream that we absolutely never had and couldn't have imagined getting to this place. But secondly, it's a dream where we feel like we're only just getting started. And if you enjoy what we do here, please join the 24% of people that listen to this podcast regularly and follow us on this app here's a promise I'm going to make to you. I'm going to do everything in my power to make this show as good as I can now and into the future. We're going to deliver the guests that you want me to speak to and we're going to continue to keep doing all of the things you love about this show. Thank you. Thank you so much. Back to the episode. So there's so many things. that I want to ask this question because it, I just really want to hear it in your own words, which is like, and i have I've, I've trying to maybe piece it together using some connected dots, but why stunts? I have a theory that... um
1: that the, the human condition is one of uh, a real catch-22. We've got one instinct, which is to survive, and one guarantee, which is we won't survive. And I, and I view the human experience largely as an exercise to come to terms with our mortality, to wrap our heads around it, to become to come to peace with it. And um, I, I view the different ways that people do that. Um, you know, there's there's reproduction, we have children. So then I, I think uh, that eases people's mind about their mortality because they have a, a legacy living on with their children that they, they won't really be dead. And then of course, people turn to religion because they think everything's gonna be great when they go to heaven and and then th- there's people who leave stuff behind to outlive them you know like cavemen scrawling stick figures on the on the cave it, it it seems that they they were just like i described really upset about their mortality and and leaving this art on the cave walls to outlive them because i had failed in in university the way the way i did i mean i failed every which way that you can And every attempt that I had ever had to be employed ended in disaster. I was fired from literally every job that I ever had. So not being able to uh, make it through school or keep a job, I felt absolutely just not qualified to navigate the world. I, I, I believed that I was going to fail at life like badly and and quickly. And um, I think that this idea that that I that I, I believed that I was just gonna fail at life and die very young, I think that it heightened my my mortality issues because even though you know I was I was young, but like, man, I think I was somehow a- angry at, at the idea of, of death. And, and my theory is that I was, uh, I was lashing out at death by, by climbing off of balconies and, and just dangling f- from my hands off like 12 stories and then letting go and dropping onto the balcony below, like that was. Totally life-threatening, especially how intoxicated I was while doing that, and um, you know, I, like like I said, I wanted that girl who dumped me to think I was gonna die. Like there was this 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 idea of mortality was was very woven into all all of uh, the art, and so I think that I was I, I was I was upset about mortality and, and lashing out at it. I was mocking death, taunting it.
0: What why you? Because that, that is I understand at a certain level we all probably have that relationship with our mortality, but you seem to more than anyone I've ever spoken to have had a more close and adverse relationship with the concept of mortality, the concept of death. Like you seem to the way the way that I'd word it plainly is like you seem to have the biggest problem with death than than anyone I've met. Right? Why? <laughs> um, I think
1: about it, and you know, I've always thought about it since you were young. I'd say so. Yeah, I would. I would absolutely say that. I I I seem to recall being quite young. I I I wouldn't know an age, but quite young, and and being in the bathtub, just for some reason, I was thinking about. It's gonna be the year two thousand and and like we weren't really anywhere near the year two thousand, um, but just kind of doing math in my head, trying to calculate how old I would be at the turn of the millennium. and i I came to uh twenty five I'll be twenty five years old and and the thought was... I'll never live that long. <laughs> 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 no, I'll never make it that long. That, um, and, and again, I don't know how old I was, but I was definitely a child when I had that thought, and, um, and and the the older I got, the more convinced I was, and that that um, I wasn't going to live very long, and and, and perhaps you know that's you know another manifestation of of my alcoholism but I think that, that I think that really to describe alcohol alcoholism there's there's a like i felt defective you know i felt de- like there was just something wrong with me that uh things weren't gonna work you know and I think that 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 to some extent is a, a characteristic of alcoholism for a lot of alcoholics feel like just uncomfortable in your own skin they describe it as restless irritable and discontented um defective is a word that really resonates
0: with me does that does that ever subside Ooh, it's a tough one because um
1: I don't think so. I mean, to an extent, yeah, i, I I'm definitely better with all that now, like what, but at the same time, it doesn't go away. I think that it it, it, it improves and and you know fluctuates and but um, what doesn't go away is this this default setting I have that everything's not going to be okay. You know, I live in this perpetual state of, of terrible anxiety and stress that just things are not going to be okay. And I've got to just hurry up and frantically work and hustle to try to make it so everything will be
0: okay. I'm not surprised to hear that because it is the story I've heard over and over and over and over and over again, Okay. Yeah. Okay. No, good. No. And, yeah. But, and it surprises me because when before I started doing this podcast and having these conversations, I assumed that you know something, you know, have a certain upbringing, childhood, you're you're programmed in a certain way, you go to therapy and it's fixed. Yeah. And it's actually been I've I've asked the question purely because I've never heard anyone say anything other than what you've said. Right. So you know, and I think it's actually helpful because it helps people know that they're not their their efforts to heal in whatever context that they've tried to heal um doesn't make them inadequate it makes them very much human that you know the way that we're we're programmed and hardwired because of whatever reasons you know Mm -hmm. it it is um it is it is not something that is easy or in many cases possible just a therapy away or to prescription away Mm -hmm. and i think that makes people a lot of feel people feel better
1: and and what's crazy too is that i think and I'm fascinated that you say this is something they've heard many times. And I've never and, not heard right. it, right? Um, and and I would also guess that for all of the the successful people that you've spoken with, that they would describe having been much more at peace, much much more serenity, much more happiness before they were successful.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: and. and um, and it's so counterintuitive to imagine that that's the case but um, there's one saying that i think really explains it to a degree which is that this is the saying um a man who has nothing only has to worry about his next meal Mm. but a man who has everything worries about his last meal (laughs) yes and that that messes me up man that messes me up big time because if you're just focused on the next meal then you're in the moment life's you know pretty pretty simple it's not too much of a task to to accomplish finding your next meal but once you've got your next meal covered and then it's like all right and then i've 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 saved up some money my i'm I'm good my next meals are set for for the next year and, but then now you're thinking, how long am I set for? And mm. once you start thinking, how long am I set for, then, then, then life gets really scary, because when, when, you're not in the moment and you're, you're future tripping and everything isn't gonna be okay. And then, and, and, and what's even crazier is that I understand that there's been studies about um, financial security And it's people who have upwards of $10 million net worth who, who find themselves feeling considerably more financially insecure than, than, than anybody who has less, the more money you have, the more
0: financially insecure you feel. Uh, the study that I read about this, it says that um, they interviewed people all the way up the wealth income spectrum. And they asked them the question, how much money, how um, how happy are you out of 10? And then they asked them the second question, which is how much money would you need to be 10 out of 10 happy? And all the way up the wealth spectrum, people said three times currently what they have now. So millionaires said they needed 3 million. <laughs> people with 10 million said they needed 30 to be a 10 out of 10 happiness. And people with 100K said they needed 300K, which speaks to this sort of like hedonic endless treadmill um and increasing anxiety
1: right and and um also studies are pretty clear that um happiness will increase up to
0: like a baseline it's like 75k yes household yeah Yeah. i think
1: that that number is just going up with inflation i understood it to be like sixty thousand. yeah yeah Sixty thousand a year and then you've got all of your needs met and then after that more money doesn't really equate to more mm-hmm. happiness
0: and also to your point about the, the the panic of like losing it i think that's a an issue for people that came from nothing predominantly so if you've always had this financial security growing up and you're you're you you know you were i don't know extremely wealthy or and you've been wealthy i think people tend to have less of a fear of going of losing it all and they also never seem to have the guilt i sit here with people and they speak to this success guilt they have. Okay. I, and I hear that a lot. And it, it's typically people that have felt sleeping on a sofa. That have the kind of, even when they become successful, they feel like they don't deserve it to some degree. And I read that a little bit in your story, in your book. Right.
1: Now, it's interesting because I, I grew up very privileged. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my, oh, yeah. uh, my, my father didn't grow up with privilege. As I said, he broke the mold becoming a businessman. He became... Like my my mom didn't marry a, a rich guy. Right. She, my mom married a motivated guy who who became quite wealthy. Um, I had privilege guilt when I was a kid. I was I was like quite ashamed of um, of, of how wealthy my parents were. For, and and I don't understand why that is, but um, in whose eyes? In this- like I I was I was uh, self conscious about about um how my peers uh. viewed me at school. Um, as I grew older, the the homes that we lived in each move to each you know represented a, a bigger house. You know, it it became kind of a little bit obnoxious, but. By the end, um, when, when I was, um, uh, attending high school, um, here in London, I went to the American school in St. John's Wood and I lived directly across the street from Regent's Park on Prince Albert Road Oh wow! in this, I mean, it was a, a just gaudy, obnoxiously huge house. And, um, I never wanted kids from school to see it. So, um, I, uh you know we would have like overnight when you're a kid mm-hmm. you just, i wouldn't have kids spend the night at, at my house i was always uh, overnight at, at someone else's house and um for, for me to ride my skateboard to to school you know t- took a certain amount of time and if i if i would oversleep i would ride with my dad my, my dad was chauffeur driven to work and and he would uh be reading his newspaper in the back seat and and whenever i overslept and i had to ride with my dad the chauffeur would pull up to the school and and as i got out of the car i would hug the chauffeur (laughs) yeah like to try to create the impression that i was just embarrassed my dad was in the back seat like uh being
0: chauffeured around uh i I don't know what that is um wanting to fit in it's every i was the opposite. Okay. In every respect. No one came to my house because right. it was like it was the windows were smashed and the grass was six foot high. Um so I, everything you described was me, but the opposite for opposite reasons. Like right. I would I would pray that the traffic lights near our school would stop, go turn red, which meant that I could get out of the like this beat up van we drove in as far from school as possible. <laughs> yeah. Whereas <laughs> you were hugging the chauffeur. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. It's really interesting too. Like I I went to a super privileged school too I mean like uh, I attended school with the son of the American ambassador to to the UK like I was like my my best friend was this kid Abdullah his father was like a crazy like oil tycoon and, and uh, when I when I when I was in for, for me fifth and sixth grade I was in London England at that time too same school and my father was I'm not even quite sure what his job position was, but, but worked for Del Monte, the canned fruits. Yeah. And he had to, um, uh, you know, like the all the pine, there was a pineapple factory in Kenya. Dad had, had to go visit this pineapple factory. I want to say maybe once a year. And so he planned the trip, his trip to the pineapple factory in Kenya to coincide with, uh, our, our spring break, the one week off from, from school so that he could take the family on safari. And I have this crazy memory of coming out of the airport in Nairobi, being ushered into some chauffeur driven car. I always remembered it as a a stretch limo. My dad says, no, we didn't have it, but whatever. Ushered into a chauffeur-driven car out of the airport, and um, and sitting in the back of this car, and these these just it was my first time seeing poverty, like real poverty, and these people were were clawing at the windows, begging, mm-hmm. and I'm just sitting in this car and, and and just thinking, what did I ever do to deserve to be like? I'm not a good kid, <laughs> you know, like I I'm just always in trouble. Like I don't do I'm just like, again, feeling defective, you know, like, and it was, I really wasn't a good kid. I mean, I was always in trouble. Everything was just a disaster with me. And here I am inside the car that's being clawed at by these people who are barely clothed, you know, and just clearly desperate. And um, that, like that was a, a moment where I felt genuinely guilty. You know, I had a privilege. Privilege guilt, you know, and that's different. That that's worse than success guilt because, mm. you know, a, and again, I did everything wrong. I was always in trouble, got terrible grades, and my sister, who was, who is three and a half years older than me, she did everything right, got straight A's, the the, the, the just did everything perfect. Somehow uh, along the way, like. My, like my sister, um, went into a, a low earning career. She was a school teacher, which is notoriously underpaid, especially for how important of a job that is. Um, to, with the same became a single mom with a special needs kid, and and low earning, and and it, like kind of struggles you know like like life is hard for my sister and and like somehow me the, the guy who just did everything wrong and then goes on to have this stupid career and, and everything just works out great for me <laughs> so when you said success guilt
0: mm. i
1: feel that I, I feel like like what why you know why did everything work out great for me and my sister's having a tough time and, and i struggle with that too i actually um i uh i i i have a, i i've always called it kind of
0: survivor's guilt but but yeah success
1: guilt same thing
0: you your mother um had a brain aneurysm in 98 you yep. said um jackass the pilot was in 99 yeah a year later yeah you describe how your mother was ill for for roughly 5 years before she passed away and she was um Dis- disabled. You're very busy with Jackass at that time. How do you do? You deal? Did you did you cope with it? Because it doesn't seem to me that there's any anyone in your life really at that point, or any experience that's going to help you deal with the concept of grief and loss. Right. How, how did you cope with it? If you did it all, um,
1: my parents divorced in 1991. I graduated from the American School here in London, the American School in London in St. John's Wood in 1992, I went off to the University of Miami. Um, the, uh, right around the time when I went to the University of Miami, my mom moved to Florida as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Then on that fateful day of October 10th, 1998, we received word that mom had this brain aneurysm. My sister and I flew to Florida from New Mexico. My dad flew to Florida from England. We all congregated around this this crisis with my mom. At one point, we went to a, a nearby restaurant just to get a meal. I went outside to smoke a cigarette. And my dad came outside and Initiated this conversation. He says, "I've been. I want to tell you that I feel I've done a disservice to you by not supporting you in this path that you've chosen. My my path to be a crazy famous stuntman." He said. He said, "I chose a path that my father, you know, Dad broke the mold becoming a businessman. The idea of that was pretty repugnant to his father." Mm And and he said that his father had the same conversation. You chose something that I would not have chosen for you, but you're clearly committed to it. And so I just want you to be the best and you know be the happiest. And I pledge to support you. And I'm thinking, man, like it's tough because I'm a loser. You know, like the whole thing going on with my mom was it was, was kind of prevalent, but this the side conversation like i just felt like wow you know like now dad supports me and I, I i just did i didn't feel very very hopeful i don't think at that time but it put a lot of wind in my sails so the next year i saw this advert on television for a show called real tv where they're saying if you got if you have video, home video footage that's crazy and you think that it, it, we should have it on our show, then call this number. And so I called the number and sent them my videotape and they wanted it. And uh, and dad helped me negotiate the, the license deal with them. And, uh, and it was meaningful. You know, the, this pursuit of becoming a crazy famous stuntman had made my father and I as far apart as, as you know, it really, really made us not our relationship suffer, mm-hmm. and then ultimately it would bring us together. And today, my dad is eighty years old, been retired forever, but he's come out of retirement and I, he's on my payroll. He uh, manages like all kinds of uh, business stuff for me, all my insurance stuff like and um it's crazy <laughs> it's insanity that 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 you know, just again what, what what drove us so far apart brought us so close together
0: and that catalyst moment was your mother's brain aneurysm really it was that, that conversation might not have happened and then
1: it, it it was and now now you pointed to when jack asked her i wouldn't just dis- well okay Um, my sister and I both moved from New Mexico to Florida to be with your mom, to be with my mom. Yeah. And my sister naturally assumed the role of, of caregiver for my mom. And, um, I, I got this opportunity to go, uh, be a circus clown on cruise ships. And it just made sense for me to do that. You know, like, um, I think that my overall attitude particularly, like even going off to work on cruise ships and then with, you know, with, with Jackass, I don't think that I had any level of like guilt about it. I think that my, my attitude about pursuing my own career and to be you know with jackass and everything else my attitude was that rather than let this aneurysm destroy everything that that i've i've really strongly wanted to get out there and really make something of myself and that that would be the way to honor my mom more and and
0: make my mom proud that way people don't and often appreciate how difficult it is for the, everybody around the individual that's that's sick. And I've again I've learned that from doing this, having this conversation about just how sort of debilitating and difficult it is for everyone around the individual, especially when they're in yeah. a situation where they become disabled. And your mother's situation was, I mean, she 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 couldn't move from what I understood. She wasn't necessarily speaking. She was
1: wheelchair bound.
0: She uh, had
1: to be lifted out of bed and into a wheelchair and and back
0: and could she she could speak
1: she could speak but there there it, it fluctuated how present she was how aware she was um one of the more aware moments i said mom i'm going to have a book written about my life and she uh she said and who's going to write this masterpiece <laughs> 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 and, you know she was making fun of me and it was funny Like uh, the last time that um, that my mom ever laughed was I I came home um, with the words shit and fuck tattooed on my knuckles. And um, mom was in the hospital at that point with the do not resuscitate order on her bed. Like this was, this was the end. Like it was about a month before she passed. And um I I I walked into her hospital room and I just didn't, you know, it was just a tough situation. I didn't, and I just said, "Hey, ma," like check it out. And I held up my my knuckles to her, and she 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 looked at it and she said, "Shit, fuck, shit, fuck," and then she said, "My son is a shit fuck," and she, she like. She laughed and, and it's just the most beautiful I thought it was just the most beautiful thing, like uh she was able to laugh and you know and um yeah, it's tough, man. That whole thing's tough and 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 the the toughest thing is just imagining when uh when I was struggling in the beginning, like like prior to her aneur- aneurysm, like there were times when uh I'd show her one of my videos, I'd say, Ma, check it out. She says, Oh yeah, well, that, that that's great. But like how how are how is this ever going to like earn you anything? Mm. <laughs> you know, like she didn't ever seem to be like terribly concerned for my safety. I was showing her videos of like jumping off of bridges and <laughs> like you know, doing stuff that was like really pretty dangerous and, and uh appeared to be life threatening. And and that never seemed to upset her. What what she was upset about was that uh, that I I was I didn't have a pot to piss in. That she would say, "You don't have a pot to piss in. Like, how am I supposed to be impressed by this? Where's this ever gonna get? You know, how is this ever gonna?" She would say, "Show me the money. <laughs> you know, show me the money. Like, how is this gonna get you the money?" And um, man, like, given that 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 was her position on it. And I think that that she was um, largely concerned with the appearance of things and, and um, like less, she wasn't ever, I never got the sense that she was worried for my safety on mm-hmm. any level. I think that just what she was concerned with was how I reflected on her.
0: Interesting.
1: You know, like my son's a loser, this is a bummer. You know, she was bummed that I was a loser. Because that reflected badly on her, and um, that's just that's what was important to her. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. And
0: um, is that why you want her? You'd like her to be able to see. God, her? yeah,
1: man, that's the toughest thing to imagine. If uh, if we if if she 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 had been to rehab many times, she was in the program of recovery, but she just couldn't hang on to that. You know, she would always. She would just always end up drinking again, and um, I think that what would what would cause her to relapse was was the you know trauma from the breakup with my dad, which is just a vicious cycle. Because what broke her up with my dad was her drinking, and then the trauma from the the divorce would make you know it's a vicious cycle. But um, had she gotten it, had she? really, really grabbed onto it and not let go and been in recovery. And and both of us. Like she would have just gotten such a kick out of like being on being on the red carpet at a big movie premiere. And she would just be letting me have it, making fun of me for the dumb shit I was doing in the movies. Like we'd be laughing. So that was one thing. My mom had like a sense of humor. She had, a, she was cool, man. She was cool. And we would,
0: we we, we related to each other a lot. You're your 29, no, November the 7th, she passes away. Correct. A mixture of emotions. I read in your book, um, in Professional Idiot, page 194, the overwhelming emotion I felt afterward w- w- was relief. Sure,
1: yeah. She like it, this, the suffering was over, you know, it was, it was merciful. Like there's nothing upsetting about my mom dying. It was, what was upsetting was the, the pain and the suffering that she had endured for the five years leading up
0: to her death. Do you ever process that? We talk a lot about these days about grief and we understand that grief is a thing. And I don't think we ever did before. Do you, did you ever process that?
1: If I did it was years later in recovery and and digesting the concepts in that book Conversations with God that was when i finally uh the the that that was when I just Developed the idea that mom wasn't alone. You know, that mom was, uh, she wasn't alone. She, like, that, that uh, that was an experience that she had as God. And, and somehow that just, that it's, it doesn't change anything, but it changes everything.
0: Alone. Why, why the word alone? Why was that the concern?
1: Yeah.
0: Just because the,
1: I mean, it, it's uh, like on 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 a bigger level, like mom mom's this one thing you know. So there's no such thing as alone.
0: At the same time, Jackass starts taking off, right? So that's roughly yeah. around that time your fame goes through the roof.
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> mom's aneurysm was 1998. I worked on cruise ships for six months of. 1999 i worked in a circus at a flea market for six months in year 2000 and jackass came out in october of year 2000 and then yeah
0: everything the movie comes out 2002 yeah um you're 28 years old at that time your mother passes when you're 29 the next year these two things have have almost happened at, at, at similar times your trajectory has started to skyrocket your mother has passed away lots to deal with lots going on fame is this new thing in your life now and attention and as you said earlier like worrying about the next meal is maybe sometimes a better problem than worrying about the last um this strikes me as as a real difficult moment in your life um i i the from professional idiot which i read it said by by mid 2007 i was practically living on diet coke booze and nitrous uh
1: not diet coke a diet of cocaine. Oh, cocaine.
0: <laughs> Fuck, I
1: really... <laughs> it's a big difference. It was a, it was a diet of... of- coke. <laughs> yeah, <it's> like-
0: <laughs> big difference. Um, you were yeah. ha- hallucinating and hearing voices.
1: Yeah, big time. It's called psychosis. Uh, and, and it's a fascinating... Um, it's a fascinating thing that... Um, There are so many different substances one can ingest that might bring about this phenomena of psychosis, yet there's so much similarity between the experiences people have with it, uh, even though they take so many different avenues to get there. And that's partially why I believe that psychosis, um that there's uh sort of different compartments, maybe dimensions, and that um we in our in our human experience we're uh in a distinct compartment uh and that psychosis happens when you erode the the barriers to the other compartments, other dimensions, and by doing that with with chemical substances, um, we erode the barriers, kind of open ourselves up to energies from other dimensions. Um, you, you open yourself up to like all levels of it so you can really let in demons you know like like demons being low level frequency energy and angels like being a higher level Mm -hmm. and by uh just consuming enough substances I, i i really believe that you erode the barriers you open yourself up to all these energies and um in comes flooding demons and and angels and that that's how i characterize my experiences with hallucinations um all that
0: stuff is uh demon activity with some angels mixed in um i was reading about this thing called the rad email list oh yeah where you sent an email to a a lot of people which i think ultimately sounds like one of the things that brought about an an intervention but
1: right it wasn't One email, it was more of a uh, stream, uh, uh, a barrage. I was inundating a list of 200, roughly 200 people, many of them very influential people in the the entertainment industry. Celebrities and agents and just powerful people, uh, you know, media personalities um and i was just inundating these 200 people with emails at all hours around the clock and and effectively broadcasting my downward spiral in real time and and i would send at times really funny stuff you know at times uh just deeply alarming stuff i was you know i i was I knew that I, how out of control I, I was, but but I, but I was just, I was rad. <laughs> I mean, I, I was out of my mind. I was out of my mind and I was making that abundantly clear by uh, sending video, YouTube had become a thing. YouTube started in 2005. So 2007, YouTube allowed me to make really, disturbing
0: videos and then email the links (laughs) to 200 people. If I was a fly on the wall in 2007 in your life, what would I have seen on an average day? In 2007, I was renting four apartments
1: in one building. (laughs) One of them, I just uh, demolished the walls and built a skate park (laughs) throughout the whole apartment. Um, with permission from the landlord no not at all no no, no permission whatsoever and it was just with the, the 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 i remember there was like a russian prostitute operation um in the adjacent apartment so they weren't trying to complain about the noise there was a stairwell uh, on the other side and beneath was the uh, the parking garage so it was um there there were never any complaints for, for that and then um a little bit down the hall was uh, I had um, a couple of my buddies living there. One of one of them was uh, you know edited stuff for me, but we very very rarely. Well, I mean he would.
0: <laughs> he thinks he works hard.
1: <laughs> yeah i mean i, I had people like uh on salary and they, they, they didn't do too much but when i was really out of my mind and these disturbing videos that i wanted to email the links to the rat email this my editor guy was in charge of that <laughs> um so yeah i had the the office the skate park apartment the office apartment and then i had an apartment for the assistant the assistant really didn't do anything um except <laughs> uh Explain to people that she couldn't get a hold of me <laughs> and change my flights, uh, when because I would always miss my flights. <laughs> um, and then I had my apartment, which, uh, was this is sort of a this is where all, where all the really crazy stuff happened. That was that was just my little drug den, and um, I, w- I would inhale this nitrous oxide stuff and and it would come in these little cartridges that people used to make whipped cream and a box of these nitrous oxide cartridges would have there would be 24 cartridges per box but if you bought a case there would be 25 boxes in the case and i believe that 25 times 24 comes to 600. um and so I would sit down with 600 cartridges of nitrous oxide and just inhale, it, like the, the the thing that the cartridge goes into, this canister, Shh. correct, yeah, but I'd have two of them. Oh, so shit. I would, you know, crack one. I would crack one up and fill that and inhale it. With my lungs filled with nitrous oxide, I would be busy filling up the next one. <laughs> So that when I exhaled the nitrous from the first, I would then inhale. Just so I would not breathe. I was I wasn't breathing air as like uh, I was breathe. I was inhaling nitrous oxide to the exclusion of breathing air. I mean, as much as possible. And my my goal at all times would be to lose consciousness because if you um you know if you do that and you hold your breath. You you will become unconscious and you're kind of twitching and and flopping around and and uh, your lips are all blue and then and then you come back to and and it would uh, it's not not healthy uh, and I would be doing that and I would be doing that for days on end while um, snorting cocaine so it was on on like the second and particularly on the third day of being awake on a cocaine binge while inhaling nothing but nitrous oxide um that's when the the most profound psychosis with all of the hallucinating would be going on
0: you sent out on that rad email one time s- s- suicidal ideation
1: yeah i i, I uh i um I mean, I was going so crazy in this apartment and, um, I, uh, very loud and, 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 um, destructive in there. And, and the, the next apartment over was, uh, a, a lawyer in his first year of being a lawyer. Uh, so, you know, like, um, a guy who cared about work, and I was just <laughs> making all kinds of noise at all hours. And so he was—he would call the police. He's kidding. Like, hey, you know, this is my neighbor. It's insane, you know. And um, the more that the police would show up at my apartment, the angrier I would get at the lawyer who was calling the police, which mm-hmm. is a little bit backwards. And that was kind of my mo. Mm-hmm. Like I would—I would wrong people. And then I would resent them for their perfectly natural response to being wronged by me <laughs> so, <Mr. Honest. laughs> so, so, so i would uh you know I would bang on the guys well I would really antagonize this this poor lawyer guy, and um at, at one point it it got to uh to the level where pounding on the wall, I actually pounded a hole in the wall. And um, I pounded a hole, you know, on my side there's, right, the, there's the 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 drywall and then in between there's like the fiberglass stuff. And then then there's his side throughout. I actually, this one night, pounded all the way through his side of the wall too. So I was actually looking into his <laughs> apartment, which of course constitutes vandalism. <laughs> So when he called the cops this time, and the the cops showed up, they had no choice but to actually arrest me for vandalism. He said, "Look, they put a hole in my wall," so they um, were here to arrest me, and I was um, really, really uh, out of it, um, like having been snorting both cocaine and ketamine. So uh, I was super out of it and didn't put it together that I was being arrested and going to jail with a bag of cocaine in my pocket. (laughs) I mean, I probably could have, it would make sense that, and I remember it was funny too, because they said that I was barefoot and I had no shirt and they said, well, we have to take you to jail. We have no choice, but we will let you go put on a shirt and some shoes, which, which was the perfect opportunity for me to go into my apartment and remove the bag of cocaine from my pocket. But I didn't do that, and I'd said, you know, fuck a shirt, fuck shoes. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to jail completely barefoot and shirtless, with, with a bag of cocaine in my pocket, and um, and, and then when they, you know, when they process you into jail, they search, you know, your pockets. Mm. They found the cocaine, and they arrested me again. So I was now I had a felony cocaine possession charge as well as the vandalism charge and and this was like pretty well publicized the you know the fact of the cocaine mm-hmm. and the, you know the arrest and um when i was released from the jail i was in there for like uh, i want to say like 3 days because the consensus among anybody who loved me was he's better off in jail so there was no concerted effort to bail me out which is why i managed to stay in there for i believe th- about 3 days And then when I finally did get released from the jail after the three days and I returned to my apartment, there was an eviction notice on the door. So my response to that was, oh, okay, well, I'm being evicted. And I went into the apartment, I found more vials of ketamine that I had stashed in there and I cooked that all up. And um, within a couple hours, I was like screaming about God, like while jumping up and down on a parked car, and like dealing with more cops.
0: (laughs) You you were manhandled into a psych ward, right? Like
1: yeah, yeah. Well, so I went on this 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 prodigious final bender, and and uh, I was running out of time before I had to get my stuff out of the apartment. I I was evicted, so the email to the rad email list was, "Hey, I have to have my stuff out of this apartment because I've been evicted." But before I have to be gone, I want to uh, jump a motorcycle. I want to ride a motorcycle through the living room and off a ramp and jump it over onto the building next door, which was very, very small gap. <laughs> it, was not, it was hardly even a big stunt. And, and it was like two and a half stories up. Uh, I think I was on the third floor, but it was really like kind of two and a half, so maybe like twenty, twenty-five feet. And, and I, and I said on the Rad email list, and I also I want to jump the motorcycle onto the roof next door, and I want to jump out of the bedroom window into a hot tub. <laughs> you know, and I just said, so Knoxville, bring a camera crew and a hot tub, and if you can't do the hot tub, at least bring some cardboard boxes but I'm jumping out of the window and I'm jumping, you know, and if you don't come, I'm jumping out of the window anyway. I'm going to jump and I'm going to find out how many bones break when I land on the sidewalk, 25 feet below, I'm ready to die. (laughs) Like I was was, like promising that I was going to jump out of the window and, and break bones on the concrete below. And that qualified me for the psychiatric
0: evaluation. And they, they staged an intervention. they
1: staged an intervention. Yeah. And yeah. I said not so Knoxville responded. I, I forget if he responded with all two hundred people on copy. Oh shit. But uh but I said this I did this on the, the rad email list with the two hundred people and, and um I said uh, um if <laughs> Knoxville responded, he says, Okay, I'll be there. You know? I said be here at ten AM Be here at ten AM where I'm gonna jump. But his response was, "He says, uh, can we do noon? What's with the early call times?' Sheesh. <laughs> so we agreed on noon. <laughs> I forget. I don't think he was concerned with the early call times. I think what he was concerned with was having more time to uh, to rally a you know a, a group to really do the intervention. But but by in that email exchange. I I was not scheduling a shoot for, you know, Mm -hmm. for Jackass as I thought. I was actually scheduling my intervention.
0: And that's really where your life seems to have started to take a new direction, although not linear in any respect.
1: Well, I mean, that that intervention marked uh, the beginning of my journey. I've been clean and sober since that day which is, I mean, the, the intervention many, was March 2008? 9th. The intervention was March 9th of 2009. Wait, oh, sorry. No. Eighth. Yeah, March 9th of 2008. And we don't count that as our sobriety date because it's the first day you didn't get loaded is your okay. sobriety date. So my my sobriety
0: date is March 10th of
1: 2008.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, as you know, Zoe is now sponsoring this podcast and I'm a proud investor in the company. And I've been going on the Zoe journey myself. It all starts with this home testing kit you get sent in the post, which measures your gut health, your blood sugar and your blood fat. I've had this little device, this blood sugar glucose sensor on my arm, which came in the home testing kit to understand how all of the different foods that I eat day to day have an impact on my body. And it's been pretty unbelievable. A big thing for me is feeling tired after I've eaten something and not understanding why. Historically, I didn't understand. Now I do understand. I'd been eating, I think it was like a rice stir fry with a bit of chicken and some chilli sauce in there. And I saw on my blood glucose chart on my phone, which is connected to the device that Zoe sent me, this huge spike. And then later in the day, I saw a huge dip when I started feeling that sort of post-lunch slump. And what will happen next is Tim tells me they'll take all of that data and give me my own personalized zoe scores for any food so i can figure out what i should be eating and what i should avoid if i want to avoid those afternoon slumps and if you want to get started on your Zoe journey with me use the code we've got an exclusive code here ceo 10 for 10 percent off and let me know how you get on when it arrives back to the episode over 14 years sober over 15 now over 15 years sober yeah congratulations dude that's amazing honestly that's incredible
1: it's so incredible and I I don't say that to you know to be uh self-important or you know like like douchey it's just the most profound gift like ever and I I believe strongly that you know this conversation began with this dark discussion of alcoholism and 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 how uh just how terrible and, and sad alcoholism is. However, as upsetting as alcoholism and drug addiction is, it's the only disease where once you treat it, you become a better version of yourself than you were before and and that's really incredible to me because any other disease the best you can hope for is to get back to as healthy as you were before you got sick but for us sober alcoholics and addicts like we genuinely become improved versions of ourselves
0: and the work you've done since has been incredible i mean you've taken on many professional pursuits um your stand-up comedy became a facet of your life in 2013
1: uh 2010
0: 2010 okay i had
1: the first time i had um gotten on stage in a comedy club and and uh performed what what i intended to be stand-up comedy was 2006
0: how did that go
1: um i thought it went a lot better than it actually (laughs) did but um but the first time i ever got on that stage it, it wasn't it wasn't a disaster it became a disaster later um but but in 2010, once I'd been clean and sober for just over two years, I, I I pursued stand-up comedy in
0: earnest. Why stand-up comedy? I know you've got a big tour coming up in the UK, but why stand-up comedy? I'm trying to understand the through line between the stunts. It's the, the the through line is just attention seeking, you know. Um.
1: The first time i ever got on stage to perform in a comedy club uh there was it was 2006 i believe it was august of 2006 and um our second jackass movie was um to be released a couple months later showed up at this comedy club i walked in had no plan for what i was going to do and just Observing what was happening on the stage with somebody standing there holding a microphone, just speaking to the audience, um, I thought, there's no stunt that could possibly be crazier than that. You know, like I'm going to do my, 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 the craziest stunt that I could possibly do is no stunt at all. I'm going to stand there and speak into a microphone and try to make the people laugh. This was genuinely the most terrifying concept. And I was just wasted enough to decide i'm gonna do that when it became my turn to to get on the stage, um I had come up with one joke and as I got on the stage there were people they they were aware of me, they were excited to see me. I felt like an excitement <clears throat> uh they they were there to have a good time they were they were mm-hmm. rooting for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, like get on the stage I was oh, steve O'Rad. Mm-hmm. they were they I felt loved. I felt uh that they were rooting for me. They wanted to have a good time. Terrified. I, I got I got on yeah, I was terrified, but but uh but it was it was just it, it was man, it was uh it was electric, dude. And um, you know, I, I said, you know, what's up everybody? I'm in the mood for a blowjob. Does anybody want one? <laughs> <laughs> and uh <laughs> And, and and I got laughed, you know, like they would laughed, and I just was so happy about that. And um, I couldn't have been on that stage for more than three minutes. Like um, I got on and I got off, just got out of there. And it was a favorable experience. And I decided that this was something I wanted to pursue.
0: And you've been pursuing it ever since. There's a an awesome tour coming up in the UK from June 30th to July 14th, I believe, called Bucket List. That's right. And and which I'm coming to see.
1: Oh, dude, I love that man. Gonna make sure that, yeah. that happens. So. When when I started doing stand up in earnest in 2010, um, I imagined that I was that I was trying to establish myself as a stand up comedian, and that I was going to forge a career with with speaking into a microphone, and um and and I felt that I felt that I was well equipped to succeed in that endeavor because my life has been so just uh colorful like the experience that I've had in my life like to 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 mine my life experience for material stand-up <laughs> comedy uh it seemed very doable you know like I've got I've got stuff to talk about yeah. so I, I felt that I came into stand-up comedy not with just an advantage in that I had um an audience, a profile, but I, I just had an interesting mm-hmm. material to, you know, mm-hmm. to to mine, and um, clearly the world was not eager for the stand-up comedy of Steve O. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. You know, I think mm-hmm.
1: that there, the bar for the stuff that I was known for, like to to go from like the 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 shocking like unbelievable like crazy visual stuff that I'd become known for. Mm-hmm. And then appear speaking mm. into a microphone. It seems like a
0: mismatch in expectation. Yeah. Like and that's a, always disappointment, isn't it?
1: Right. Like and and maybe this is from my own perception, sure. I'm not sure. But with all of the self-doubt, with all of the um you know, neg negative self talk. I just still persisted, and um, I-, I wasn't super successful in the beginning. And like, uh, of course not. But I was successful enough to get booked by comedy clubs, and then be welcome back. And I would go around this comedy club circuit around the the United States, and I did just well enough to go back around the loop and that loop lasted for 11 years in comedy clubs and and um i I tirelessly persisted i i I genuinely didn't i put in work and i developed this craft of storytelling and and stand up telling jokes along the way i taped two comedy specials the first one was me in a microphone and uh, some intermittent stunts I performed on stage throughout the act. Mm -hmm. And as I put together what would become the next comedy special, I put together this, this new act to tour with. It occurred to me that the stories I was telling in this new act had for the most part all happened on camera. And I had the idea. Wow, what if for my next comedy special, I I perform the act, but in post production, I edit into the special interstitial footage
0: of these stories unfolding. Ah, love that! So it's so, depth to the storytelling.
1: Oh, dude, my head exploded. I got so excited. I I couldn't even I couldn't even stand it. Was, wow, like I'm gonna have a, my next comedy special is gonna be multimedia. Uh, that that one I put out myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then it was time to put together the third show. So now I knew that for this third show. Which is Bucket List. The Bucket List, correct. That I needed to film all new stuff, which would lend itself to all new stand-up material and it had to be crazier than shit it had to be crazier than
0: ever and that's what people will see if they go yeah, okay
1: for sure the, this uh there there were just ideas that came up over the years that were that were genuinely never supposed to happen on any level but they were they were just ideas that i was so fond of because they were crazy things to say
0: i can't wait the idea to was to it. push
1: things further than jackass ever could and there's no way that you do that and there's not a story to tell. You know, well, there's okay. a, <laughs> yeah, to like, there's the, like the, 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 the challenges of, of making these things happen. It's just, there's uh it's inherently juicy material for standup. There's just no way around it. And, and one step further is that, um, I've worked so hard on um, developing the ability to be in a healthy relationship with a life partner.
0: So I was just about to ask you, this was my right. last question, which was about Lux.
1: Right, my fiance Lux. And and the, the, the bucket list show is every bit as much about these ultra high level jackass stunts and how they were conceived and executed It's every bit as much about that as the implications of carrying out these bucket list items on my relationship with my fiance.
0: What I was actually going to ask you about was specifically kind of the juxtaposition of what's making you successful here seems to me as a guy that's gotten into relationship, struggled to find a relationship for my own reasons with my childhood seems to be the antithesis, the very opposite of what it takes to be successful in a relationship, which is like the stability, the, the, I don't know, the, 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 the calm, the... Right. And over here, we're seeking instability. And here in a relationship, there ne- I, I don't know, there needs to be a certain stability that I think. How?
1: Well, to derive one's self-worth and self-esteem from external validation uh, the way that, that we do in show business. Like for... <laughs> for for me to base my self-worth and self esteem on how successful I am as Steve O, it just plainly presents a dark and upsetting future as the spotlight wanes. You know, like the mm. the and, and, and I can't and this is something that that became very clear to me fifteen years ago when I got sober was that for me to be happy and, and healthy on any level, it is of paramount importance that I find some separation between me and the persona of Steve O. And um, with that kind of ruminating in my mind, and and as I when I got into the stand-up, like I I was acting out sexually as much as possible on the road while doing stand-up. And and at that time I was um in my late thirties, approaching forty. And and it just occurred to me, man, this is not the the, mm-hmm. the 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 road to being happy and you know I gotta learn if I wanna be happy. Later in life, I need to learn how to have a healthy relationship. That was a a belief that I subscribed to. And I got to work on learning how to be in a healthy relationship. And thank God I did because I'm terrified of being a washed up, old attention whore that nobody wants to pay attention to anymore. And being alone. And being alone. That sounds like the most terrifying like awful thing, and so what does it? What does she mean to you, Lux? I mean, she. You said something earlier that uh, that the the design for living in the twelve steps, and this isn't my, you know, kind of extrapolating on what you said. You said that the principles of honesty, open mindedness, and willingness are helpful to all people, and I'll take that a step further that the design for living outlined in the twelve steps is something that. You don't have to be an alcoholic or an addict to benefit from. But what Lux is as a person is somebody who automatically does that stuff. (laughs) You know, she's automatically honest. You know, she's automatically like open, willing, Like, like she's automatically does the right thing. You know where I had to to really really work and train myself to be honest and to do the right thing, <laughs> you know, and uh, you know she's just automatic. It's just automatic to her. And and Lux's capacity for love is so staggering. Like her, it's just so natural to her to to be loving. And, and, and it blows me away. We both, like, with animals, we're out of our minds. We love animals so much. And um, God, the way that Lux loves me and the way that she wants me to love her, like, just, uh no, 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 hold, like, the way that we, like, hold each other, the way that, like, she's, she's, she's taught me to love. She's, she's increased my capacity to love and and that's that's the biggest deal man it's it's massive
0: such a beautiful thing steve thank you so steve-o steven yeah thank easy. you so much um we, we have a closing tradition on this podcast where the last guest leaves a question for the next guest okay um and the question that's been left for you is one of the most interesting questions that's ever been left, in fact. They All don't right. know who they're leaving it for. Good. So it's totally sweet. They said, what can Stephen? So you've filled in the blank. No, 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 no. They literally wrote, what can Stephen? And they're talking about me. Ah, okay. Funny enough, they spelt they it with your name, with a PH. They said, what can Stephen, this beautiful man, improve about himself?
1: So, so that's my quote. What can I improve yeah. about myself?
0: No, it's. They're asking you to tell me what I can improve about myself because ah, okay. they didn't know you were called Stephen. So they said, "What can Stephen, this beautiful man, improve about himself?" Honesty.
1: And you didn't speak about yourself very much, but <laughs> but one thing that you did say, um, you seemed to point to the deficiency in your relationship with your girlfriend mm-hmm. being. That you're so consumed with work, mm-hmm. and uh, that you said something about she wants quality time. You can't compensate for your, uh, you know, all of your energy and time going into your career, and that you want to compensate by with material things, and and that but that she's no no interest in material things. She wants quality time, mm-hmm. and um, I think that uh, that you and I both, um, have this, uh, this drive, this, this, this hustle, this, this urge to succeed. And, um, I think that, uh, the that both of us would do well to find our success in our relationships. Every study about, about longevity and health and happiness 100 percent points to relationships as the source of happy true happiness and true health comes from the quality of our relationships not the numbers in our bank account but the quality in our relationships so um I think that the the my answer for you is the same for me. is it. just that uh, you know that we should put the emphasis on our quality time in our relationships that we do on our
0: hustle. <laughs> and it's and it's the, the the reason why I I don't is because I think of some of the stuff that I said earlier about like where I came from and being a poor family. and all, that. So like my survival innately in me or my validation comes from my work. So I'm like being pulled by this like insecurity and the shame right. from my childhood over here, like become fucking, become everything that you weren't. And, you know, and then on the other hand, my sense goes, well, Steve, the happiest times in your life, the, the, all the studies I've sat here with the guy that did that 95 year old study on um, men and found that they live i think it's like 14 years longer if they have a meaningful relationship i know logically (laughs) but then emotionally and the scar the scar tissue in me goes no you need to validate yourself right i'm being dragged by that still to, to you know
1: right and hustle but but not in a way that that undermines or or detracts from the quality of the relationships
0: is that, that's what you're doing
1: <laughs> i mean like uh
0: i mean yeah shit
1: lux and i have a rule that, that we, we were not to be apart for more than two weeks i love that and
0: love that. we spent two
1: days together over the course of six weeks we broke our rule badly mm. and that's not cool man Sucks. yeah so um if i wasn't so you know, so, so operating from fear. That's the, that's the, the difference. Yeah, exactly. Hustle yeah.
0: because you love it. Not because you're not because you're, a, you're uh,
1: afraid of the post-apocalyptic, yeah. Yeah. you know? And
0: there's this is concept I've been toying with a lot in this podcast between the distinction between being driven and being dragged. And sometimes I'm being dragged. Yeah. The driven is the like intentional. It sounds like, you know, kind of the, the intentional hustle with control over the hustle. Dragged is like fucking fear. Like if I don't, yeah. then I'm not enough. And, Right. I've taken so much of your time. Stephen. I did. Thank oh, you good, so man. much. Really, really appreciate it. A pleasure to meet you. And I've learned so much. Incredibly surprising, wisdom-filled conversation that graced so many different aspects. Um, I'm so excited to see Bucket List. I'm sure all of my audience are as well. The 13th is the date to be there, right? Hacking yeah. Empire? Oh, yeah. That's where I'll be. I'm looking they, forward they, to but it. I
1: think that we might be able to open up some tickets on the 14th. Okay. <clears throat> um, but, but I don't know, and I don't know how many. I just know that as, as I sit here now, mm-hmm. The, the the show on the 13th just went live okay. so that's that's a whole show that i gotta fill
0: so link is in the description below to get tickets in the youtube description and on the audio apps it's in the description below and i hope to see you guys there thank you so much Stephen. Dude, thank you Appreciate bro it quick word on Huel. As you know, they're a sponsor of this podcast and I'm an investor in the company. One of the things I've never really explained is how I came to have a relationship with Huel. One day in the office many years ago, a guy walked past called Michael and he was wearing a Huel t-shirt and I was really compelled by the logo. I just thought from a design aesthetic point of view, it was really interesting. And I asked him what that word meant and why he was wearing that t-shirt. And he said, it's this brand called Huel and they make food that is nutritionally complete and very, very convenient and has the planet in mind. And he, the next day, dropped off a little bottle of fuel on my desk. And from that day onwards, I completely got it because I'm someone that cares tremendously about having a nutritionally complete diet. But sometimes, because of the way my life is, that falls by the wayside. So if there was a really convenient, reliable, trustworthy way for me to be nutritionally complete in an affordable way, I was all ears, especially if it's a way that is conscious of the planet. Give it a chance, give it a shot.